This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One thing that fascinates me among many things, is when humor is mined from a horrific situation without really playing the situation for laughs, so to speak. Obviously, comedy and horror have a history of commingling to unsurprisingly varied results given the challenge of executing either of them well, to say nothing of the subjectivity of what's considered funny and scary. Comedy can also complicate horror because, in my view, A horror story that doesn't scare you can still be considered good, even very good, or beyond that. A comedy that doesn't make you laugh, though, or at least generally amuse you, has a much slimmer chance of being viewed favorably. My simplified theory for this, and this is just my opinion, is that it's easier for extended sequences intended to frighten people to be incorporated into important, meaningful story beats. Freddy Krueger terrorizing Tina to open Elm Street certainly unsettled me the first time I saw it, but there surely had to be some people who weren't the least bit rattled by it. Nevertheless, it's a crucial moment that establishes the villain and the nature of the threat right away. A moment like it would have to arrive at some point early in the movie to let us know what's happening and what's at stake. Even if you're not scared by it, the idea of it might intrigue or entertain you. You could also aim to unnerve audiences more so with atmosphere and a sense of foreboding, neither of which need impede the plot. With comedy, it can be a little different. You can just spread the jokes throughout the story in a way that doesn't really stop the action, but a lot of comedies, really good ones, don't do that. I like the movie Friday, for instance, and it's full of moments that don't do anything to advance an ultimately thin plot, so if the jokes don't work for you, there's pretty much no chance it's going to keep your interest. Role Models is another film that I find funny, and it has stretches devoted to comedy that really press pause on advancing anything else, like the five minutes or so spent with the leads, watching a video and hearing an introduction about the community service program they'll be working with. If you're unfamiliar with the movie, that sounds like it could be important to the plot, but I assure you, it's not. But I'm a little off-path here, so let me make sure I stay on track. The reason I'm even bringing up comedy blended with horror is that I find this to be an interesting, perhaps unexpected entry point to discuss an idea and fear that's going to take considerably grimmer and sadder turns as this episode goes along. So I'm kind of easing myself into it. The aforementioned idea and fear is that of feeling like a sane person dropped into a mad, mad world. A world in which rules that make sense to you not only don't apply, but the fact that the world is breaking those rules can prove hazardous or even actively hostile to your mental and or physical health. 
One place where I find this fear frequently exploited for comedic purposes, despite the scenarios portrayed typically being terrifying, is on the YouTube channel Caleb City, featuring comedy sketches performed by YouTube personality Caleb Glass. I'm far from alone in thinking he's funny, his videos routinely reach well over a million views. And judging by the comments, and I generally never recommend anyone venture into YouTube comments, but judging by some of the ones I have read on some of his videos to see if anyone else was thinking what I'm thinking, I'm not quite alone in finding much of his material just a bit disturbing, even when it's frivolous. For instance, he has a simple, short sketch that's all about how bad it feels when you stub your toes. He overdramatizes it for comedic effect, making it seem like the character who stubbed a few toes on their right foot is going to die from the pain, before having them realize after a bit that it's actually not all that painful after all. Again, simple idea, fairly relatable as we've all probably stubbed our toe at some point and felt that jolt of pain that makes it hard to think for a few seconds before it subsides. But then Caleb adds the odd twist that alters what is realistic and sensible, that relies on what we know is true about minor injuries and anatomy being suddenly, inexplicably altered. The character who stubbed his toes takes off his shoes and socks just to make sure his foot is okay and finds that all the toes have come off. The fact that a close-up shot from earlier showed that only three of the five toes were even impacted doesn't seem to matter. But actually it does matter, because that's the point. It's Looney Tunes logic, or for a more classical and literary reference, Wonderland logic. The Cheshire Cat warns Alice that everyone in Wonderland is mad, including her, or else she wouldn't be there. It's less an assessment of her mental condition and more warning of what Wonderland invariably does to you. Back to Caleb's video, in his universe, this is the kind of thing that can happen to you. It's meant to be humorous, yet isn't really presented as humorous. Caleb's character and the friend that's with him are appropriately horrified when they see the toes on the floor. And okay, the toes are very obviously a sliced up hot dog and ketchup, so that element is going for laughs. But it's not like the camera lingers on that nearly as much as it captures the anguish on the face of the injured and the horror on the face of the witness. And the root of that horror is that what they reasonably expect to happen is far removed from what has actually happened. As far as strange turns go, that sketch is relatively tame by Caleb's standards. In another sketch, when he pulls a prank that accidentally results in a friend spraining their ankle, that friend's foot seems to come alive, twisting all the way around and moving autonomously, stepping forward like it's trying to escape the pain residing in the rest of the body, dragging its screaming, helpless owner along with it. In another, Caleb buys a wonder cream being sold via late-night infomercial. When he applies as instructed to his ankle, his foot unexpectedly falls off. Then his other foot, on the leg he didn't even apply the cream to, also falls off. Stranger still is one sketch where a man sneaks into a rapper's house to rob him, only to listen from his hiding space in a closet as the rapper recites a recently written verse about torturing and killing a man who snuck into his house to rob him. The man in the verse has the same name as the robber. The man in the verse was found hiding in a closet where the robber currently is. 
The man in the verse is said to have been left for dead behind the rapper's couch. As the robber attempts to escape, he sees a body behind the couch, wearing clothes that look a bit like his from what we've seen. A commenter pointed out that the sketch plays out a bit like a ghost story in which a murder victim is reliving their death. As much as I like that idea, I'm always in favor of a ghost story, I still prefer to think of it as yet another example of Caleb's characters encountering a horrifying, nonsensical situation they couldn't have possibly prepared for. Again, his worlds often operate on Wonderland or Looney Tunes logic, which probably accounts for why I like his videos. Growing up, I was fond of a lot of the cartoons that often featured tormented, comparative straight men characters being foiled, terrorized, and nearly killed by an illogical world. One character can quickly paint a tunnel into the side of a hill and run through it to escape, for example, but their pursuer will run into solid rock and crush their face if they try to do the same. A parachute cord gets pulled and an anvil impossibly comes out of the backpack. If you're Wiley e. Coyote, every product you buy not only malfunctions, but does so in a way that will defy logic, physics, or both in order to hurt you. On a surface level, this may well seem like an unrelatable fear, but it is something that many of us have felt at some time on a more grounded level. Dare I say, most of us. The concern that your basic, common-sense understanding of how the world should work does not apply. This can be a product of unusual or extreme natural phenomena. One thing we learn from the simple experience of walking and often falling when we're very young, for instance, is that the ground is solid. Yet, a severe enough earthquake can make the ground move in waves like it's fluid. Under the right circumstances, it can bring about soil liquefaction a phenomenon in which the sturdiness of previously firm ground can be reduced to a sort of spongy, springy surface that's a bit like a waterbed threatening to turn into quicksand. What this looks like in action can be observed on a much smaller scale in two videos posted by Matt Robinson, which I'll link to in the show notes. When you get a chance to watch those videos, seeing Matt literally bounce on the strange, muddy, earthen trampoline he's made, Imagine trying to run through a field of such terrain. What happens when you fall? Partially sink into it. What do you do when the thing that we all walk on, that is considered synonymous with stability, without warning, becomes almost as unstable as a body of water? There are less directly threatening examples of naturally occurring anomalies, that can nonetheless make one question their sanity or reality. The oddity of so-called gravity hills, for instance. These are documented places where it appears that gravity flows backwards, in defiance of known science. There are videos online you can find of this phenomenon in action, employing no camera tricks or any misrepresentation showing objects such as bowling balls or even cars rolling uphill from a still position at the bottom of the hill. The reason for this is an optical illusion. For different potential reasons depending on where the hill is situated, what appears to be downhill from a certain perspective is actually uphill and vice versa. Gravity is operating as it does anywhere else but in the observer's mind, it appears to be doing the opposite of what it should. 
Despite the illusory nature of this being easy to look up and probably somewhat well known at this point, many of these spots are still subjects of local lore. Some are referred to as mystery spots, strange locations where other assorted aberrations of physics can be found. Others have ghost stories attached to them, as is the case with Richfield Road in Richfield, North Carolina, or in my city, San Antonio, at the railroad crossing on Shane Road. In both stories, your car will allegedly be pushed to safety by the ghosts of victims of a tragic accident. The invention of these stories and others highlights how strange things can get when we attempt to explain things that don't make sense to us. In the short story, Something Passed By, by Robert R. McCammon, as alluded to by the title, an unknowable force of the cosmos passes by the earth, and in its wake the laws of nature have been scrambled. Think of if the world were indeed a computer simulation and the code got irreparably corrupted. That might give you an idea of what happens in the story, but it's still possibly more bizarre than you imagine. Water becomes a volatile explosive while gasoline becomes safe to drink. Rocks fall from clouds instead of raindrops. Spontaneous human combustion isn't uncommon. Sometimes invisible forces called gravity howitzers crush entire hills, and the story's protagonist lost his son when the boy's bedroom became a pocket vacuum that found air abhorrent. He, his wife, some friends and neighbors, after some time, try to live life as sanely as possible when they can, having a poker night, for instance, anything to regain a fragment of normalcy. But the aggressive deterioration of reality refuses to allow this. Eventually, the sun changes color, summer rules the world, and aging reverses for some people while accelerating for others. And what's most unsettling about the story isn't the chaos itself, but that people remain aware of just how chaotic things have become and how much more chaotic they can get. In some stories, the madness does not come to the character. Instead, the character is unexpectedly brought into a situation where rules of reality are cast aside in various ways. In the short story Adventures in Further Education, written by Peter Atkins, a man cavalierly taps his pin on a desk for the 17,445th time, testing a new physics theory first introduced to him years ago when he was in sixth grade. He just wants to see if the solid pin will slip through the solid desk, as the teacher that introduced new physics to him told him was, theoretically, a possibility with enough repeated tapping. The pin does slip through the desk but it also does much more, ushering him into a world where the office he was just in has disappeared, and where, quote, lightning in colors he couldn't name seared across the infinite and multi-hued sky in jagged shards the size of which he couldn't conceive, end quote. Worse still, he is somehow seeing this despite having no eyes, which have disappeared along with the rest of his body. In Octavia Butler's classic novel, Kindred, the lead character, a black woman named Dana Franklin, suddenly finds herself transported back in time to the era of slavery in the United States, connected inexplicably to a seemingly innocent white child who grows to be a slaveholder who is also her ancestor. 
Her travel is linked to the many times the man finds his life in jeopardy or in other circumstances where she can influence fate to ensure her continued existence. But this tether only facilitates the kind of temporal predestination and paradox that, by its very nature, isn't intended to make complete sense. What's more interesting is that as much as this seems capable of driving someone insane if they dwelled on it too long, the story shows how much more taxing it is to one's sanity to be thrown into a world where the standards of human rights you are accustomed to, that seem rational and reasonable, are not followed and are even outright abhorred by those who dominate society. A cartoonish yet threatening type of absurdity is one thing. A more science fiction or supernaturally based irrationality is another. But these kinds of stories can be parallels or parables for more practical situations where someone is thrust into a ridiculous, seemingly unresolvable predicament. And even stories with plots that deliberately eschew reason or plain and rational motives for its antagonists can have terrifying similarities to real-world events. It can be scary and disheartening to see how Franz Kafka's story, The Trial, can reflect reality. An ordinary man is accused of a crime and told to appear in court. He's not told what his crime is. He's given a date, but not the exact time of day to appear. He's given an address, but the building isn't recognizable as a courthouse. It looks like every other building on the street. In fact, it appears to be occupied tenement housing. And when he goes inside, he has to figure out which room is the courtroom on his own. After searching the building, he eventually happens upon the right room on the fifth floor. The first thing he's told is that he's an hour and five minutes late. Again, he was never even provided a time to appear in the first place. This is just the beginning of the ordeal that Joseph K. suffers through in Kafka's The Trial. At this first hearing, which really shouldn't be called anything of the sort, K. identifies that a huge organization is behind his mysterious arrest, his investigation, and prosecution, and that this organization is rife with corruption and incompetence. He is nonetheless fooled, while speaking in his defense, into thinking that a number of the attendees might be on his side and aren't part of the organization. It's not until he's done with his speech declaring his innocence for a charge he's never been made aware of and admonishing the court for its persecution that he realizes he has no supporters in the room. Before he's allowed to make his exit, a magistrate tells him that, somehow, Kay has now, quote, deprived himself of all the advantages a hearing invariably affords a person under arrest, end quote. Even if you weren't familiar with the general plotline and gist of the trial before reading it, or if you weren't familiar with Kafka's namesake style, it wouldn't take you long to realize that Joseph K. is the target of a bizarre, meaningless conspiracy, which is uniquely evil because of how pointless and relatively mundane it is. Nothing extraordinary is at stake. Kay is not a man who knows too much, who accidentally witnessed the wrong thing, or who is even distantly related personally or professionally to someone who is a player on the larger political stage. 
Nor is he a man who is particularly loathed by a wealthy, powerful individual, like Yamashita, far better known as Odaisu, from the manga and more popular film Old Boy. That character can at least eventually trace their unexplained sadistic treatment to one individual from their past, nursing an unusual and enormous grudge. No such nemesis exists in Kay's life. His situation is possibly surreal enough to befit the kind of story that ends with the revelation that everything preceding it was a dying dream. But even that kind of far-out, unforeseeable explanation is denied the character and the reader. The trial is not designed to provide a traditional satisfactory conclusion, not even a tragic one. It leaves us to draw our own conclusions and interpretations. When it was adapted for the big screen, for instance, the great Orson Welles envisioned it as a very dark comedy, and also an allegory about a man discovering his homosexuality. The latter is far too much for me to unpack right now without completely diverging from this episode's topic, while the former harkens back to the comedic elements I covered in the beginning of this episode. Unfortunately, what I take from the story isn't anywhere near amusing. I think it can be seen in a much less allegorical, much more literal viewing, as a frightening example of authorities who refuse at every level to admit a mistake, or even consider the possibility that they have made a mistake, or to care one iota about the devastating impact such a mistake could have on an individual's life. Whether or not Kay is guilty or innocent of the crime is immaterial to them, what the crime even is and whether it even happened doesn't matter to them. He's been accused, and they've set the wheels in motion to punish him. And this can't be undone lest they appear too fallible for their own liking. Even when it comes to minor issues such as neglecting to tell him when to arrive and where exactly the courtroom is, they can't admit that they might have missed something and instead blame Kay for being late. A less surreal but no less frightening and frustrating version of this shows up briefly in another story. In Season 3 of Fargo, we see representatives of a totalitarian government arrest a man in his home for murder. His name is Jacob. The man they accuse him of being is named Yuri. Despite Jacob clearly not being the same person, something easily proven, the officer in charge insists on relying on records available to him. A man named Yuri lives at the address, according to the records. Jacob is the only man currently living at that address, therefore, Jacob must be Yuri. And he is now under arrest, and surely to be found guilty for the charge of murder. The film Fargo, of course, was made by the Coen brothers, who are not strangers to the Kafkaesque horror, so absurd it can be seen as comedic, of an ordinary person plagued by the arbitrary harmful decisions of people surrounding them. Barton Fink is a terrific example of this. So it stands to reason that the series inspired by their film would also contain a moment that is a not-so-distant cousin to Kafka's trial. But my view of Kafka's story is not only related to other works of fiction. In the fifth episode of this podcast, titled Fear of Being the Outsider, I talked a little about the miscarriage of justice Joyce Ann Brown of Dallas, Texas suffered through. Much of what happened to her also fits the fear of feeling like the only person talking sense and not being listened to. 
Police latched onto her as a suspect due to her sharing the same name as the infinitely more likely culprit. Far more evidence pointed to the other Joyce Ann Brown who actually committed the crime. The identified getaway car used during the robbery and murder, for instance, could be traced back to her. When questioned by police, she admitted to having rented the car, then said she loaned the car to another woman whose residence, when searched, contained a gun matching the type used during the crime, and even more incriminating, some of the stolen merchandise from the store that was robbed. Nothing close to this was found at the innocent Joyce Ann Brown's home. And not only that, she had an airtight alibi that her co-workers could vouch for, and that would have made it physically impossible for her to be at the scene when the crime occurred. Nevertheless, she was prosecuted and convicted. And as one of her defense attorneys put it while describing the possible mindset and motivation of the prosecution, quote, criminal cases sometimes acquire a momentum of their own. And sometimes there's an attitude that we find. Don't confuse me with facts. I've got my mind made up. End quote. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've got my mind made up. I find it terrifying to imagine having my fate being in the hands of someone who has this train of thought. Unfortunately, Joyce Ann Brown is far from the only victim of a system run by people who hate the idea of being wrong more than they care about actually getting it right. Or by people who don't care about how ruinous a corrupt or broken justice system can be to the individual. People who are more beholden to inaccurate documents or grossly inefficient and deleterious processes than to simple reason. I did warn earlier that this episode gets sadder and grimmer, and this is where I bring up the tragedy of Khalif Browder held without trial for three years in one of the nation's most notorious and violent prisons for allegedly stealing a backpack with some valuables in it. Something he was, again, never even tried for, much less convicted of doing. Nonetheless, he served three years, most while being a teenager, in the brutal environment of Rikers Island. Less than five years after his release, unable to live with what he experienced while unjustly, unlawfully, incarcerated, Khalif took his own life. Jerry Hartfield, bringing us back to Dallas yet again, spent 35 years in prison for a crime he swore he did not commit. What makes his case extraordinary and a situation that fits this episode is that for 32 of those years, he was awaiting a retrial ordered by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. They had determined that prosecutors had improperly dismissed a juror in his original trial and required that Mr. Hartfield be retried. Bizarre bureaucratic miscommunications, inattentiveness, and an appalling lack of concern or urgency on the part of people who should have made sure the retrial happened resulted in three decades passing before the state even acknowledged its error, and that Hartfield shouldn't be incarcerated, and even then, they refused to release him. The deciding judge, much like the magistrate in Kafka's trial, blamed Hartfield for the state's own mistake. It wasn't until later that the Court of Appeals finally admitted that Hartfield's right to a speedy trial had been violated, a massive understatement, 
and that the state was beyond negligent. He was granted his release. The same is not true of Thomas Raynard James, convicted of murder in Florida in 1990. Thomas Raynard James did have a criminal past, but no murders, and regardless, there was no real evidence linking him to the crime. In court, while one witness ID'd him, another said it wasn't him, while a third admitted she hadn't gotten a good look. What should truly exonerate him, however, is that like Joyce Brown, Mr. James just happened to share the first and last name of the man that police were actually looking for. That other man who prefers to go by Tommy James has openly admitted that he's the man police meant to arrest and investigate. This admission, along with other considerable evidence James has cobbled together on his own through his two decades of imprisonment, hasn't helped. He can tell this seemingly insane system what it got wrong, how it got it wrong, and how it can fix the issue in his case. He can shout that they got the wrong man and point out that the right man is willing to corroborate this truth. And it nonetheless gets him nowhere in the face of unmoving irrationality. As journalist Tristram Corton writes of the Thomas James situation, quote, The singularity of this tragedy is that he found a way to discover an improbable truth and it wasn't enough to get anybody's attention. End quote. There are more stories like this that you could find. I would say there are a shocking number of them, but it's actually scary how little it shocked me to read one after another after another. There are over a thousand men locked up in Louisiana alone who have waited up to four years for their trial dates. It's all dispiriting, to say the least. And I know that trying to end this episode on a slightly less downbeat note is an entirely selfish thing I want to do here. And it won't get these stories out of my mind or yours, but I'm just not going to feel right leaving it as it is. I want to look at another story about this fear of having a demented, unreasonable environment attack your mental and physical well-being. One that, unlike Kafka's classic, finds its way to a point where the frightened and aggrieved might survive, and the ultimate sources of fear and injustice might find comeuppance. The 2003 supernatural horror mystery, Gothica. Among the positives of the film Gothica, not exactly well-regarded cinema, but a film that I'm going to defend some here, is that it doesn't spend much time misleading its audience into believing that the patients at the psychiatric hospital it is largely set within are the villains or pose much threat at all. Not to single out my beloved horror genre too much, but it doesn't have a terrific track record with respect to depictions of mental illness often portraying any kind of mental illness or neurodivergent quality as a cause for or gateway to homicidal behavior. Gothica, starring Halle Berry as Dr. Miranda Gray, is imperfect in its depiction of the mentally ill, but it doesn't try to get too much mileage out of depicting its patients as scary or menacing. Distantly reminiscent of the infamous and momentous real-world Nellie Bly investigation from 1887, 10 Days in a Madhouse, the story here is more about the frightening flaws to be found within this institution. The situations aren't strictly comparable, of course. Bly's report found the patients in appalling conditions, living among rats and waste, 
enduring beatings from the staff, subsisting on spoiled beef and filthy water, bathed with buckets of ice water in unwashed tubs, so on and so forth. Bly stated she believed even a woman diagnosed as sane wouldn't be able to maintain her mental state for long under such conditions, reminiscent of the Cheshire Cat's statement to Alice about Wonderland. You cannot come here and not be mad. The environment will not allow it. By comparison, the mental hospital in Gothica is positively pristine. Its issues aren't visibly evident, but are nonetheless heinous. Abuses are taking place within the hospital, and the primary patient trying to communicate this, played by Penelope Cruz, has Dr. Gray's sympathies but not her trust or understanding. While Cruz's character, Chloe, speaks of an abuser of supernatural origin, her attacker is far too human. Gray, however, soon finds herself confined to the asylum and followed by an angry spirit that used her to slaughter someone. The question, immediately, is why. Ghost stories often make for solid metaphorical vehicles for the disbelieved, people who are told that what they claim to have seen or heard cannot be real. They are made to sound and seem confused or mistaken at best and unhinged at worst by those who tell them their senses and mind must have failed them. The skeptic in a ghost story is often placed in an unfair position objectively because the audience knows they are reading or watching a ghost story, so they know that the skeptic is wrong no matter how sound and logical their argument is. Yet this carries over into reality. Victims of various crimes and abuses have been doubted or disbelieved simply because the people they try to report the abuse to can't fathom that it's even possible for the accused to do such a thing. A beloved, trusted teacher surely wouldn't take advantage of a student. A man of the cloth surely couldn't take advantage of the youngest, most vulnerable members of his congregation. A surgeon surely wouldn't maim over 30 patients or be allowed to keep his medical license for years and bounce from one hospital to another, continuing to cripple patients despite overwhelming evidence of gross incompetence or malice on his part. Why, that would seem almost as unlikely as a spirit of the departed lingering to scare the living. To a strictly logical mind, say that of a psychiatrist like Dr. Gray, the very idea of seeing a ghost would be as bizarre as spontaneously traveling through time, like Dana in Octavia Butler's Kindred. Or living in a world where water is combustible and gasoline is potable, as is the case with the characters in the McCammon short story I referenced earlier. Soon, however, Dr. Gray's perspective shifts, and it becomes impossible for her to say anything that makes sense to anyone who isn't experiencing what she is experiencing. She sees firsthand how what is considered sensible can be relative. By the end of the film, she's pushed to the conclusion that logic is overrated. A potentially arguable statement, but in the sense that logic is not inherently a substitute for what is just, also potentially valuable. Comparative composure and level-headedness, especially when it's just an artifice, does not automatically signal fairness. In Steve McQueen's film Mangrove, based on the true story of the attempted sham trial of the Mangrove Nine in London, there is a scene where the volatile Frank Critchlow is thrown in a cell following his latest courtroom outburst. 
the officers must physically struggle with him, but once they lock him inside the cell, they regain a relative semblance of calm, especially compared to Frank, who is still fuming in the cell, screaming insults and demanding the men fight him. Without any context, from a distance, and perhaps a naive point of view, it might be possible to see Frank as the irrational party here. But he has a right to his ravings. He is on trial for bogus charges that were based on confrontations instigated by racism that targeted him and others. As aforementioned, the trial is decidedly unfair, with biased judgments inhibiting the defendant's ability to advocate for their innocence. It might have been more logical and sensible for him to remain calm, but his anger and outbursts are justified. And as he paces his cell and shouts at the men who've placed him there, one thing he repeatedly asks them is, what's wrong with you? And at this point, something close to a breaking point for him, he sounds like he's sincerely asking, what is wrong with you? He cannot understand these men, what motivates them? What makes them do what they do, feel as they feel? How can they be at peace with their actions? What is wrong with them? They genuinely do not make sense to him. It's not that their actions or motives are literally incomprehensible. Selfishness, greed, envy, sadism, hatred, any or all of these things could potentially answer the question of why they are the way they are. Simple greed, for instance, is the speculated reason why the real-world Millwood Behavioral Center would do what it was accused of doing, holding patients against their will, fraudulently diagnosing them with psychiatric disorders to prolong their stays, purely to increase profits. The more occupied beds they have at their facility, the more money they make. Somehow, though, this standard level of avarice employed by people who are supposed to be helping others with varying neurological impairments or disorders feels like it must be the product of its own form of insanity. As reflected in the fiction of Gothica, it's not necessarily the person held captive, given a falsified or exaggerated diagnosis, whose mental health should be in question but the people who concocted or helped execute the plot to make someone feel as though they were losing their mind. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Fears podcast, written, produced, and narrated by Johnny Compton. For transcripts and research notes, if applicable for each episode, visit healthyfears.com. Primary sources for this episode include the book Joyce Ann Brown, Justice Denied, written by Joyce Ann Brown, the article The Man Who Spent 35 Years in Prison Without a Trial by Andrew Cohen on marshallproject.org, the NOLA.com article Imprisoning 1,300 People Four Years Without Trial is a Crime by Tim Morris, the TypeInvestigations.org article, Incarcerated for Years Without Trial by Spencer Woodman, and the WFAA investigative report against their will. If you're interested in my fiction writing, my publication credits and links can be found at johnnycompton.com. My debut novel, The Spite House, is scheduled to be released by Tor Nightfire on February 7th, 2023. 
The subject of the next episode is capital punishment, and in particular, the electric chair, and more specifically, a run of four films from 1987 to 1989 that all focused on an executed prisoner defying death to continue killing people. Until then, as we all work through the world's unhinged moments, remember the words of 90s rapper Boss from her one big hit, Deeper. I may be losing my mind, but better that than my heart. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 